I have the opportunity, I have the Pope this morning. Uh, before we really get started, I'm going to do something that uh, Bill wouldn't do because uh, that's just not who he is. But October's Pastor Appreciation Month. Um, I don't know if all of you know that, but I appreciate Bill, and, and I know that uh, all of you do as well. Um, but I just wanted to, to take a second there and recognize, Bill, all the, all the hard work that you do, the example that you set. Um, youth ministry is hard enough. Um, I can't imagine work with all these people, too. Uh, so, <laughs> But I, I appreciate you. I appreciate the way that, that you lead our staff and uh, Audra as well, what, what she does uh, for the children. Um, you know, I've, I've been a part of different church staffs, and I've attended different churches, and um, I love this one. I love being here. I love that God has brought us here, uh, and I appreciate, you know, just, just everything about being here. So uh, if you appreciate Bill and Audra like I do, uh, if you see them, tell them that, uh, and uh, I'm sure that they will be glad to hear that from you. So let's pray uh, as we get into the scriptures today. Father God, uh, what a great day to be here. What a great day to worship. Thank you for the rain. Uh, we needed it. Um, Lord, I, I just pray that uh, as it refreshes the land, your word will refresh our souls today. Um, that we would be able to hear it. Um, and as Alan said, be, be challenged to be more like Jesus um, through your word today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to talk about deception uh, today. I've, I've always been kind of fascinated with illusionists, right? Uh, and part of the draw is for me is trying to figure out, well, how did they do that, right? It's like I know there, there's some kind of trick going on here that I, I just didn't see, I just didn't get, I don't know what's going on. And, you know, I really like, I really like puzzles. I like uh, things like that, trying to, you know, even just untangling something that, you know, got knotted up or uh, figuring out, you know, how am I going to pack all this meat into my freezer, um, you know, or something like that. But uh, the very best illusionists, they leave you with this sense of, well, what did I miss? Surely there's something that, that I just missed. It seems like I could figure it out, but I just can't, right? Uh, that kind of deception, it's, it's fun, right? It's, it's entertaining, um, but the type of deception that we're going to talk about in Genesis chapter 3 is, it's not fun at all. Um, it is destructive. Um, so we're going to read the first five verses uh, and get into that. Genesis chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made, and that's a little bit interesting to me, the way it's worded, and it makes it seem like, you know, all the animals had their different personalities, and they didn't seem shocked that the serpent was talking. So, I don't know, maybe, maybe wild animals could talk in the garden. Um, not sure what our pets would say now if we could uh, hear them talking, but 
the, the serpent is crafty, and he, he asks a question to kind of start it off. Well, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And, and that's the very first step in the, the act through which sin enters the world. It's just, it's just that question. He's just looking to create a little bit of doubt. He knows it's not true. The serpent is perfectly aware that that's not what God said, right? But he asks a question just to kind of start to think, well, did he, did he really say that? Is that really what God's instructions were? He starts to blur the lines a little bit. Uh, we were sitting in youth group a couple weeks ago, uh, me and John and Carrie and a bunch of our junior high and high school boys, and we get started and, and we jump on into it, and we're about five, ten minutes in, and one of the boys says, Andy, we didn't pray before we started. And, no, no, we, we never pray before we start, do we? And I just, I, I started to wonder, and I'm, I'm looking at Carrie and John, and, you know, they, they've done ministry with me the whole time I've been here, and we've, you know, led small groups together the whole time I've been here. And, and I've done small groups the same way for all, almost 10 years I've been in ministry. And we never start the small group time with prayer. We always start our lesson with prayer. We always end our small group with prayer. We always end our large group with prayer. We never start the small group with prayer. But that one little question made me think for a minute, should we have prayed? Do we usually pray? I had to think about it. Until that question was asked, I was 100% sure that no, that's not a part of it. But it introduced just enough doubt. Well, I wasn't sure anymore. Eventually, you know, we're, we're right. No, no, we didn't forget to. It's just not how we do this, right? Um, but, but how many times... Has just one little question about that made you reconsider something that you were completely sure of before the question was asked? Did I turn the oven off? Is the back door locked? Alan just asked Glenna, did we turn the oven off? No. <laughs> right? Uh, is the garage door closed? Did we sign that permission slip? Whatever it is, right? You were 100% sure until the question's asked. And I always look at Whitney when she asks me a question like that, and I said, well, I knew it did until you asked me. <laughs> I didn't even think about it until you asked the question. And if Adam and Eve were 100% sure what they should and should not eat, until Satan asked that question by way of the serpent, it introduced just enough doubt for them. Right? I, I'm pretty sure that they knew what God had said, right? Because Genesis 2... 16 and 17, God speaks directly to them and says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Pretty clear what to eat and not eat, right? You can eat from everything except that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, and I don't think that God is, you know, standing with Adam and Eve on the edge of this giant forest and saying, all those trees you can eat from, but then there's one in there that you can't, right? Uh, the, the character of God that I see laid out in the Bible means that they weren't guessing about which tree they couldn't eat from. 
I'm pretty sure it was well set apart and, and God was very clear, this is the one you cannot eat from. His instructions are explicit. They are very clear. There is no gray area. You can eat food from the trees in the garden. You cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you do, what will happen? You'll die. Pretty clear. But her initial response in, in verse 3, she, she gets there and Satan asks that question, did God really say, and the beginning of her response is exactly right. Uh, there it is, yeah. God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. She's right. But then, she also says, you must not touch it or you will die. If we can get the next side where uh, it compares those two verses, uh, Genesis 2.17 and Genesis 3.3, the top is God's command, the bottom is Eve's explanation of what God said, and we notice a difference, right? We notice that she has added something in there that God did not say. And that, to me, is kind of like, that's the first sign that there's trouble. That's the first sign that something is wrong here. It's like, it's like a nature documentary, right? And, and you know, the camera's on this gazelle just you know, grazing in the field. And then the camera kind of pans out to a wider shot. And it shows the lion kind of like lurking. And it's like, you know what's about to happen. You know that there's trouble on the horizon, right? You know what's coming. Doesn't look good, right? This is about to be you know, a horror film of sorts. It's no accident that Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8 that Satan prowls like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's exactly the image I have here of, of the serpent asked that question and she says, you can't eat from the tree and you can't touch it or you will die. And he's just thinking, I got her. I have got her. This is it. When she says, you must not touch it, she deviates from the truth. God's instructions have been changed. Now, it would make sense that if I'm not going to eat it, I'm not going to touch it either, right? I, I'm not even going to play with it. But it wasn't what God said. She, she has started to add to it. And, and some, sometimes, kind of like those extra guardrails might be fine, right? Like, they may have come up with this idea of, hey, if we don't even touch it, we definitely won't eat it, right? There, there's no way for us to eat it if we don't touch it. So they, they've placed this guardrail there like, okay, I can't do this. So if I don't do this, that definitely won't happen. And they're right. And sometimes that, that can be good, right? You know, I, I have a rule about I'm not going to drive my car alone with a female student. I'm not going to give a female student a, a ride anywhere, don't even want to give the appearance of anything wrong happening. You know, uh, an alcoholic isn't even going to go into a bar because they know, well, I've got to stay out of there. You protect yourselves, those other things. Um, someone knows they have uh, an addiction, and when they're around these certain people, they give in to that addiction, so they avoid those people so that they avoid that. And those, can, those are fine. Those are our own personal convictions, our own personal uh, methods of dealing with those temptations, right? But 
Eve has twisted God's words. She has put words in God's mouth that, that were not there. Uh, she assigns this do not touch rule to God, and that's not good. Satan has a foothold there, and he goes for the kill. He twists words, and he lies to try and convince her and, and the man who's right there. You know, it's very clear that he eats too because he's right there. Um, he, he tries to give it to them. Oh, no, 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 you can eat this. He presents something appealing. He says, oh, look how good it looks. Look what you'll get if you do this. If you eat it, you'll be like God. Your eyes will be opened. You will, you will see all these things. It looks good. It sounds good. But most lies do. Right? Most deception looks good on the surface. Otherwise, we wouldn't bother. Right? If, if sin promised to feel like a sharp stick in the eye, we wouldn't do it. It wouldn't be appealing to us. So Genesis 3, 6 through 8, because the sin looks good, we have this happen. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Their eyes were opened, but not like Satan said they would be. It wasn't the good thing that he promised. They immediately feel shame at their nakedness. And they try and cover it. Before, no big deal. Didn't bother them. It's just the way that things were. Things were perfectly fine. Things were perfect. But then they weren't. They hear God coming and they run and hide like children who've been doing something that they weren't supposed to do. And they hear mom or dad coming. And God calls out and then the blame game starts. The Lord God called to the man, verse 9, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said... Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? God knew the answer to this question. But it's kind of like a parent, you know, digging at, okay, what's really going on here? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. No, it's not my fault, God. It was, it was her. No, 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 it's not my fault, God. It was the serpent, right? Everyone's trying to blame somebody else, but in the end, you did it, right? You knew what to do, you knew what not to do, and you did it anyway, so here come the consequences. We know the consequences. You know, the, the serpent has promised that his head will be crushed. Uh, the man will have to work the ground and it'll be hard and, uh, you know, by the sweat of his brow. And the woman will have pain in childbirth and all these different things. And then they're cast out of the garden. They're cast out of perfection. Sin enters the world. Everything kind of just, for the most part, goes downhill from there. I think there, there are a few main things that we can learn 
uh, from this passage of Scripture. Uh, and the first is, we must know the truth so we can refute Satan's lies. Right? The first problem was, Eve wasn't completely sure about the truth. She added a little bit of something else in there. You know, when Jesus was tempted in the desert, Satan tempted him with scriptures that he quoted directly from scripture. But he twisted them, he took them out of context, it wasn't the real meaning. And Jesus responded with scriptures in context, with the correct meaning, that are not twisted. Right? I, I tell my students all the time, uh, they're probably tired of hearing it, but it's going to be awfully hard for you to live a life that honors Jesus if you don't know what his word says. If you don't know what the Bible says, you're going to have a hard time trying to live the way that God wants you to live. You might stumble into some of it by accident, by, you know, just following the laws of the land. But increasingly, even that gets a little iffy, right? If you don't know what God says, you can't do it. Or you're going to have an awfully hard time at the very least, right? So we have to know the truth so that we can refute Satan's lies. Uh, the second thing I think we learn is that any deviation from what God says is dangerous. When, when the woman assigned just those extra few words, you can't touch it, to God, it became dangerous for her. It became dangerous uh, for any of them. Uh, John Wesley is quoted as saying, What one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. You, you let one thing slide just a little bit, and then the problem becomes a little bit bigger down the road. If we begin to compromise on one part of Scripture, if we throw out one part of the Bible, another one probably isn't too far behind. We get to a point where throwing out chunks and books, and suddenly people have lost all respect for what the actual Scriptures say. And it's more about their feelings or what they want God to be like than who he really is. No, we have to stick to what the Bible says about God and who he is and what he wants for us. Or we step onto a slippery slope that's going to end in disaster. She was just wrong enough about what God had said that it allowed Satan a foothold to question the truth. The next thing that, that I think we have to remember is none of us is immune to temptation. No matter how long you've been following Jesus, you will be tempted to sin. Because in verse 8 it says God was walking in the garden and they recognize that's God. He's coming and they go and hide. That means that they were literally walking in the presence of God, I would assume, on a regular basis. They know what it sounds like when God is coming walking through the garden. And they still gave in to the temptation. They still bought Satan's lies. If, if these two who are so familiar with the sound of God walking in the garden can be tempted and give in to that temptation, who am I to think it can't happen to me? Who are we to think that we could be immune to that? We're all vulnerable. We, we feel it and we experience it. And to pretend otherwise is to put ourselves in a dangerous position. When we act like nothing's going to happen, we set ourselves up for failure. 
Another way of looking at the fact that none of us are immune to temptation of Satan is that hopefully that encourages us to, to seek forgiveness and to repent when we need it because we should know that, hey, guess what? Everybody's in the same boat. We all struggle. We all give in to temptation sometimes. We all need forgiveness sometimes. Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. There's no new sin that we've created. It's all been done before. So own up to it. Move on. Be reconciled to God. And try to do better next time. Try to be more like Jesus. Satan wants us to feel shame for our sin. That, that shame that Adam and Eve felt when they ran and they hid. He wants us to feel alone. He wants us to feel trapped. He wants us to feel like we have no way out from our sin. Should we feel guilt at our sin? Absolutely. When we recognize that we have fallen short of God's standard, when we have missed the mark, we should absolutely feel guilty. But then that guilt should move us to repentance. That guilt should move us to uh, making reconciliation and then moving on, not trap us, not make us run and hide, not make us feel shame. We should deal with it head on and then move forward in the grace of God. We don't want our sin to have any power over us. It doesn't have to have any power over us because of Jesus Christ and the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Christ arose, and that means my sin's taken care of. My sin is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah for that. Our final lesson from the scripture today is this. When we do disobey and we do fall short of what God has called us to, he will still forgive and provide. He knew what Adam and Eve had done. They had wrecked perfection. Their sin may be more than anyone else's. Ruined everything. Did he strike them down right then and there as he perfectly well could have? He was God. Could have started over. Let's try again. Let's wipe this all out. Start over. No. Did he just, you know, give them the boot out of the garden and say, good luck? No, he didn't do that either. Genesis 3, 21 through 24. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. God provided garments for Adam and Eve. He provided everything that they needed, even through their disobedience. Disobedience isn't the end. It's not one strike and you're out. Thank God. Literally. God is a God of love. He, he will bring everyone who is willing uh, to submit to him into his embrace. He will give each and every one of us his mercy and his grace and his love. But we have to accept that from him. But he's also a God of justice. And there will be earthly consequences for our sin most of the time. Right? Even those things you think you got away with, 
It'll catch up. But, thankfully, again, Jesus on the cross took care of the eternal consequence of our sin. Adam and Eve were still taken care of, but they were cast out of the garden, never to return. And eventually they died. One of their sons killed his brother. Snowball, right? Gets worse and worse. So as we close here, I want to take a couple minutes to present some of the lies that Satan will attack us with and the truth Scripture tells us about those same situations. The first lie I want to point out is Satan will often say something like, your sin is so much worse than everyone else's. But Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned, all have fallen short. Your sin's not any different than someone else's. It, what you did may be different. The effect is the same. We've all sinned, we've all fallen short. Every single one of us needs the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We're all on equal footing there. We're not alone in our sin. We don't have to deal with it solely on our own. Another lie that Satan likes to use is one that says something like, if you really love Jesus, you wouldn't keep struggling with sin. Well, I like to think I really love Jesus, but I still struggle with sin sometimes. Uh, Proverbs 24, 16 says, though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again, which means even the righteous, they struggle. Even those who are close to God's heart will fail sometimes, but they get back up. Right, there's still forgiveness. Peter denied even knowing Jesus, and then he becomes a pillar of the church. Preaches what may have been the most successful sermon ever, with thousands of people coming to Christ on the day of Pentecost. Just because you've fallen short doesn't mean Jesus can't use you. And it doesn't mean you don't love him. It means you're human. You fell short. I fell short. Plenty of times. I don't think I have yet today, but... Yesterday, I sure did. It happens. I probably will later. It's the nature of life, right? If you have stopped struggling with sin altogether, please tell me your secret. If you have figured out how to, how to get past that, let me know. But I don't think any of us have that secret, right? The general pattern of your life changes, but I've, I've not met anyone who's completely stopped sinning, no matter how much they love the Lord. Another lie of Satan is Jesus won't forgive you for that. But Romans 6.10 tells us the death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. So one time covers all the sins. Satan wants to lie and tell us you're alone in your sin, but 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. When you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up from under it. We, we could go on all day, Right? There are so many promises of God that we need to stand on, like we sang earlier. Every one of them will refute Satan's lies. If you know the word, they won't fool you. Satan's lies, hopefully, won't get to you. Don't buy into the lies that Satan tells. We're going we're gonna to finish with our closing song here, so if you guys want to come on up. Uh, <clears throat> know the scriptures so you can refute his lies. Remember that any deviation from the truth is dangerous. Don't think it can't happen to you. And remember that even if you do stumble and fall, even if you do fall short, 
even if you do feel stuck in your sin, God still loves you. God still provides a way out. If there's sin you need to deal with, if there's a decision you need to make today, now's the time to do it. Let's stand, let's sing, let's thank God for who he is.